Uh, a couple things before I get started. Um, uh, actually, um, just one thing that I wanted to point out. This is the uh, the Lent devotional that we have out in the in the lobby, and I just wanted to read one excerpt from it today. Um, and this is from today's reading. Maybe you've already read this today, so this is just review for you. Um, but the, the author writes this, An interesting tradition in Lenten observance is lifting the fast on Sundays when, we, when believers gather and worship. So uh, if it's tradition that if, you're, if you have a Lent fast that you get to suspend that on, on Sundays. It's 40 days from Ash Wednesday to Holy Saturday, but you don't count the Sundays. And let me, let me read on. We are celebrating the Lordship of Jesus, our redemption from guilt and condemnation, and our deliverance from the power of sin, all of which is made possible by Jesus's suffering, death, and resurrection. Uh, I, I was just captured by the reality that, that when we get to worship on Sundays, it's like feast time. We, we get to break the fast. We get to share each other's company. And that's something that's to be celebrated. And so every Sunday, uh, I don't know, and certainly it's not required. There aren't rules to fasting. You kind of you set up your own. Uh, how are you going to, to uh, prepare and expect the coming of Easter? And you can follow your own rhythms. But it's kind of been tradition that Sunday is like feast day. Sunday's the day when we get to get together, we get to look each other in the eyes, and we get to feast uh, and, and break those fasts. So um, if you're observing a Lenten fast and you want to continue fasting through Sunday, that's fine. But I want to tell you that this is like feast time for me, to be with the people of God and to celebrate uh, and to worship with you uh, in this way. Well, I want to welcome you this morning to the journey of Lent. This past Wednesday, uh, we celebrated Ash Wednesday, uh, and it was, it was good to, to be together. Ash Wednesday inaugurates this, this moment, this journey of Lent. Uh, and Lent is a time that, that is known to be uh, a time of confession, a time of, of penitence, a, a, a time of recounting our own brokenness and our need for God, uh, and remembering our own mortality. Uh, and so Ash Wednesday was, was a powerful time to do that and to begin, begin this journey towards Lent. Uh, thanks to you that were able to come. We had two services. We did one kind of in the middle of the day for those that didn't want to be out late at night. We weren't sure what the weather was going to be either. So uh, we had one at 1, 1 p.m. and we had one at 7 p.m. Um, and it was a powerful moment for those uh, that were able to attend. But at the, the completion of our Ash Wednesday service, we found ourselves in this journey toward Easter called Lent. Uh, Lent is this time of preparation, this time of devotion. Uh, and like, like I said, uh, oftentimes people uh, choose a fast. They, they choose to say, this is a normal habit, a normal routine in my life, something that, that uh, I've come to, to become used to, um, something like coffee. Right, and you're like, "Whoa, don't touch my coffee! I'm not, I'm not going to go there." Um, and that's okay. I, I'm not, I'm not telling you you have to do that. I don't, I don't like coffee, so that's not much of a, much of a sacrifice for me. Wouldn't, wouldn't be in a, yeah. I, thanks, Dave. Appreciate that. Calling me out. Some people choose a discipline, something to add to their routine, uh, a, a putting on of, of something that will help them in, as they prepare 
for Easter that is coming. Regardless, Lent is a time of reflection uh, and self-examination. As we come to Sundays during this Lenten journey, I was drawn this year to, to the lectionary texts that come from the Old Testament. So if you're familiar with the lectionary and we talk about it every, every so often, uh, some of you are like, you talk about it all the time, Freeberg. Um, if you're familiar with the lectionary text, there's a first reading that generally comes from uh, the Old Testament, and a second reading that generally comes from the New Testament, so usually an epistle text, and then there's usually a psalm text, and then there's a gospel text that comes from one of the four gospels uh, in the New Testament. But in, in the three different yearly cycles of the text, the Old Testament readings do a couple of different things during Lent, and we're currently in year B, so it's the second of the three annual cycles through the lectionary. But in year B, they really highlight incredible moments Incredible moments in the Old Testament where, where God initiates with humanity and with creation through the story of the Old Testament. God comes to the people and says, this is, this is how I want to set things up. This is how I want to interact. This is how I want to relate to my people and to my creation. And so for these five Sundays in Lent we're, going, Lent, we're going to take a look at these Old Testament texts together that we find in the B cycle of the lectionary. I think it's going to be really good. Uh, and so today we start off with the first one. It's found in Genesis, first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 9. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to go ahead and open them to Genesis chapter 9. Uh, if many of you have uh, scripture on devices, and I'm going to uh, go ahead and, and encourage you to open those up and, and go to Genesis chapter 9. But we're going to start reading in verse 8 and read through 17. Uh, and for those who are willing and able, out of reverence for the reading of God's word, would you please stand um, as we read together. From Genesis chapter 9, starting in verse 8 and reading through verse 17. God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I am now setting up my covenant with you, with your descendants, and with every living being with you, with the birds, with the large animals, and with all the animals of the earth, leaving the ark with you. I will set up my covenant with you so that never again will all life be cut off by floodwaters. There will never again be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, this is the symbol of the covenant that I am drawing up between me and you and every living thing with you on behalf of every future generation. I have placed my bow in the clouds. It will be the symbol of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow appears in the clouds, I will remember the covenant between me and you and every living being among all the creatures. Floodwaters will never again destroy all creatures. The bow will be in the clouds, and upon seeing it, I will remember the enduring covenant between God and every living being of all the earth's creatures. God said to Noah, this is the symbol of the covenant that I have set up between me and all creatures on earth. This is the word of God given to us, the people of God. We say thanks be to God. Please be seated. have a question as we start. A question I can answer in the affirmative many times. Have you ever played games with a toddler? 
You all chuckle. That's just a question. It's just a yes-no question. Uh, have you ever played games with a toddler? Take, take a board game or a card game, for example, right? They want to play a game. They choose the game, and you sit down. Now, there are two types of people in the world in this situation. <laughs> Number one, there's the person that says, this little toddler doesn't have a chance. (laughs) I'm going to destroy them. And number two, there's there's another type of person. Uh, There's no way I'm going to let this toddler lose this game. Right? I mean, you cheat. You, you miscount, you, you sneak around, you give them the right card, you uh, subvert your own ability to make progress in the game so that this toddler can win. I'm not going to do a survey. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand which, which, which type of person you are in that scenario. I found myself to be different, <laughs> different people at different times. Um, maybe depending on my mood, maybe depending on the child, I don't know. <laughs> uh, there's quite a few differing thoughts today as we look into the book of Genesis, uh, particularly uh, for the first 10 or 11 chapters of Genesis. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not interested in starting a debate today about the biblical scholarship of the early chapters of Genesis. Um, I, I, I could be wrong in my opinion, um, and certainly there's lots of, lots of theories out there. Uh, and, and I'm not interested today in trying to convince anyone uh, that my view uh, is the right, the right view. What I am going to say today as we look into these early chapters of Genesis is that many, many biblical scholars are convinced um, that these texts the ones that we read about early on in in the Bible, the first five books of the Bible called the Torah, were were likely compiled when the nation of Israel was was exiled in Babylon. Okay, and so if you know the history of the Israelite people in the Old Testament, um, this is going to be reviewed for you, uh, but I want to just run through it really quick, okay? Um, A guy named Abram, lives down in a region called Ur. God calls him out of that area and says, I have this place for you to go. And he goes and settles in the land of Canaan. And in Canaan, uh, there's several generations go by, and there's this man called Jacob who has a son named Joseph. Uh, Jacob, you know the story of Joseph uh, and the coat of many colors. He kind of treats Joseph kind of more special or, or, or preferential treatment towards this son. He gives him this coat of many colors, which is a, a known Bible story for a lot of people. Well, the other siblings don't really like it when, you know, one sibling gets that preferential treatment. Uh, and so they take drastic action. They were going to kill him. Instead, they say, let's make some money off this guy, sell him uh, to be a slave, and he's taken to Egypt. Well, in Egypt, Joseph rises in power, right? Becomes second in the land, only, only below Pharaoh. Um, and then throughout the land, uh, 
there's a famine. Well, Joseph was warned in a dream of this famine. And so uh, he, he rescues Egypt first and says, let's prepare. And Jacob and his family come down to Egypt, right? And the family is saved. After a while, the Israelite people, the Jacob's family, will grows in Egypt. And the Egyptians are kind of like, this is scary. There's lots of these Israelites around. And so they enslave the Egyptian people. Another set of generations go by. Uh, Moses uh, gets a call from God and says, you're going to help us get out of slavery in Egypt. And we have Moses and the plagues and let my people go. And they walk through the desert back to this promised land, uh, this land flowing with milk and honey. Well, they get to the river and some of them say, Ah, the people who live in this land are kind of scary. Others say, no, God told us we should go. Let's go. Well, they hesitate. They don't believe God's going to save them. So they have to wander for 40 years in the desert. Eventually, they possess the land. And it was set up that God would be their king. But, you know, they look over the fence and they see their neighbors and they all have earthly kings. And it seems to work out. It looks like a, looks like a good deal. Look how good all these other countries have it. God, we want a king. We don't want you to be our king any longer. So they set up human kings, some good, some bad, mostly bad. Um, And the nation of Israel is picked on, and eventually Babylon, the big empire, comes in, swoops in, and sends the Israelite people into exile, and they're taken back to Babylon. So that's kind of a quick rundown of of how the Israelite nation through the Old Testament moved from just being called out. One one man, Abraham, Abram, who eventually became Abraham, grew into these people, this nation. And and it's likely that there Israel begins while while they're in Babylon, while while they're tucked away in in a place that's not their home, in a, a language that's unfamiliar, with intentional effort to strip them of everything that made them Israelite. They weren't supposed to use their language. They were supposed to be enculturated into the Babylonian culture. Israel begins to realize this growing sense of of loss of history and, and all the stories that they had told themselves, all those stories that I just kind of did a quick history of Israel in about three minutes. They said, we need to write this down. We, we don't want to lose ourselves. We, we, we have to preserve the story that God has given to us. And so this oral tradition, what they had shared together in story, became written tradition. And they wrote it down. One, one of the fascinating and, and telling things we find is that in Near Eastern civilizations, the, the flood story is not unique. But there were lots of civilizations that had this, this story. They would preserve some kind of story of a, of a worldwide flood where, where water covered the earth. What's also interesting is that a lot of these civilizations have creation stories too. I was reading one scholar. Her name is Brigant, and she, she said they would frequently include some kind of cosmic battle between the forces of chaos and a youthful warrior god 
a battle that encompassed all the celestial beings. Okay? And, and, and as we look to Genesis 1, we see that there's, there's really three characters at play in Genesis 1. There's this space, this empty space that's represented by waters that were just left in chaos. The, the world was formless and void. Those words in Hebrew, formless and void, are tohu and bohu. Just this chaos and this, this unending stirring that was going on. The, so the first one being this, this space that was, this, that was empty. The second being this chaos, the, the waters of the deep. And then there's this third character, God. God enters, whose spirit enters with the, the blowing over of the surface of the waters. And then we have the action of God. And God says, let there be. And creation happened. What's similar about all these stories, even Israel's account that we find in the Bible, is, is this propensity and this tendency towards violence and decay and disorder. It seems like humanity's kind of always trending that way. <laughs> that when we're left to our own devices, that's where we go. We have it in Genesis chapter 3. We have the fall. After the fall, who do we have? We have Cain and Abel. Two brothers that didn't end up getting along that well. Then we have the story of Noah. The story of Noah starts out bad and it just gets awful, right? I mean, it starts out with just this evil and this chaos and this violence in the world. People were not getting along. And and then God has to move and God intervenes. He says, Noah, build an ark. There's, there's a sketch with a Christian comedian named Tim Hawkins who points out that, uh, you know, and I don't want to offend anybody if Noah's Ark is the theme of your child's nursery, but who would want to take this story and make a child's theme out of it, right? Like, you know, Tim Hawkins has a line in the sketch. He says, you know, paint some screaming people on that rock over there as the waters rise. And this isn't a kid's story. A grievous story where God had to intervene. But what is unique about Israel's account? What is unique about the account that we get in Scripture of this flood story? As we take a look at these, these 11 chapters of Genesis, there's, there's many things that point out the uniqueness of Yahweh, who was Israel's God. We don't really have time to get into all of them, but what we see in this text, the text that we read, is that God stepped in and broke the cycle of violence for humanity. In, in many of these alternate stories that we find of flood flood narratives in, in, in other civilizations, the gods perpetuate the cycle of violence. The gods are in it. They're, they're having fun, like with pawns on a chessboard. They're going to just be a player. They, they have this retribution for, for doing wrong, this active contribution to the escalation of violence with the players involved. Israel's Yahweh says no. This isn't how we have to live. This isn't how it has to be. 
Instead, I want to reach out. I, I want to establish covenant, not only with the people of earth, but with all of creation. And in so doing, God restricts God's own ability to act. He restricts his own activity. I've heard covenants described, often described, as kind of this, this two-part promise. It, it's a new relationship creation. I'm, I'm going to establish covenant with you, and this is what I'm going to offer, and this is, this is how you will treat me back, and this is kind of uh, almost a contract relationship. It defines how two people or two parties are going to act toward one another for a period of time. Did you notice that there's no such thing here? There's no such thing happening here. All that's happening is God is hanging up the bow. God is the one acting. There's, there's even some scholars who, who talk about hanging up the bow, like the hanging up of bow of an archer, that I will no longer use this technique. I'm hanging up this form of destruction. But look through the passage. Take time this week. Look through it. Somebody tell me what we're supposed to do. What's our side of this agreement? Nothing. We have nothing to do. He says, I am setting up a covenant. Never again will I cut life, life be cut off by floodwaters. Never again will there be a flood. Floodwaters will never again destroy all creatures. God says, I will remember. God has all the things to do. It is God who gives and God who commits. It's God who initiates and reach out, reaches out to us and says, this is not how creation should be ordered. This is not how I want to relate to you. And this is what's unique about Israel's recounting of the story. This is what sets the biblical narrative apart, that God is the one to reach out and break the cycle of violence for humanity's sake. That God reaches out to us and commits to preserve us and to protect us and to establish a relationship with us to what? to limit his own activity for the sake of all creation. I was talking about the different parts of the lectionary text, and, and the gospel passage for this week is Mark's version of Jesus' baptism and his subsequent journey into the wilderness. Mark, Mark handles all that really quickly, um, straight from baptism into wilderness, into the start of his ministry. But the parallel imagery here is clear that that. As the gospel text is Jesus being baptized, the flood text becomes for us a recounting of the baptism of all of earth. Even in coming to to John the Baptist to be baptized, we realize that, that God, even in Jesus, was still humbling himself. Imagine Jesus. The one who John 1 says was there at creation, was there. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God. 
in the beginning. Jesus Christ going to the Jordan River, standing next to John the Baptist, saying, it's time for me to be baptized. We see the side of God that is so unique. God is humble. God is passable. God is self-limiting. God is vulnerable. Jesus Christ being dipped below the surface of the water. Image of baptism is powerful. Putting themselves in a state where they can no longer live because air is no longer available to them. There's different modes of baptism. And yet the passing through of the waters and Jesus Christ humbled himself to that point. And that is our opening passage into this Lenten season. This season of preparation for us leads us to a God who is willing to sacrifice. A God who is willing to come to us and break the cycle of violence. A God who is willing to limit God's self even to the point of death. And it starts all the way back in Genesis. All the way back in these early, this early compilation of the stories of the people of God. When a loving God says, never again, never again will this happen. And he hangs a bow up in the sky as a reminder, today I have made this covenant with all creation, a covenant for all generations, even for us. Amen? Let me invite the praise team to come on up. I, I, as I was reading this uh, again this morning, uh, it just cracks me up. God says, I've, I've set this bow in the sky as a reminder. And when I see, I'll remember. <laughs> Who thinks God needs a reminder? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think he does. I don't think God needs that. I think it's us. I think we need to be reminded of a God who loves us that deeply, who cares so much for us, that says, I want to break in. I want to change this pattern, change this cycle. The world's been caught up in chaos and violence and conflict for too long. And here God comes and says, we can live a different way. The people of God can walk a different path. Lent is here. Church family, Lent has arrived and the invitation is to prepare. Prepare your hearts and minds to walk through this season to a God who enters into self-limiting covenant with creation because of his great love for us. I think about the parent who, who limits his or her own ability, who subverts their own game as they play <laughs> shoots and ladders with their toddler. And it reminds me of a God that says, I choose to walk a different way. I'm going to limit myself. I'm going to step back because I love my creation. That is the God that is the God that invites us on this journey of Lent as we walk towards his passion, his sacrifice, and his resurrection. 
on Easter Sunday morning. My question to you this morning, how will you prepare for this Lent? What, what steps are you taking? What behaviors are, your, are you altering in order to prepare for this season of Lent as we come? Uh, into Easter. We took time on Ash Wednesday, and I'm going to just invite you as we sing this closing song. Maybe you don't want to sing. Maybe you want to just pray. Maybe just in your own seat, at your own place, maybe as you sit or stand, maybe you want to come up to an altar to pray, to ask this question, God, how would you have me prepare this Lent season for this celebration that we have coming at Easter as we celebrate Christ's resurrection. Find time today to just ask that question, God, how would you have me prepare? Oh God, (laughs) may that be the case. May we live our lives with your praise ever on our lips. It's almost ridiculous. It's almost unfathomable to to literally have your praise on our lips each day, but we strive for that. We strive for that for every moment to be a testimony of praise to you, the one who came, the one who sacrificed, the one who limited God's self out of love for his creation. Thank you. Thank you, and may you help us to live that way, I pray. In Christ's name. As you were able this morning, I'm going to invite you to stand to extend your hands. We extend our hands just kind of as a, a, a tangible expression of receiving from God today this benediction. Today, may we be captured again by the grace of a God who chooses to enter into covenant with us. The same God who created all that surrounds us invites us into this journey toward the cross. May we, you and I, accept that invitation today. Amen. 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 Go in the love of Christ.